He's the former Chief of Human Performance Optimization at the Center for the Intrepid at San Antonio Military Medical Center and continues to serve as a consultant and clinical researcher at the Center for the Intrepid. Johnny completed his undergraduate coursework in biology at the University of Texas at Austin and earned his master's in physical therapy at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, guys, I'm really happy to sit down and chat with Johnny Owens as we discuss all things blood flow restriction training. Johnny Owens is the CEO and Director of Clinical Education for Owens Recovery Science, a corporation recognizing Inc. 500. He manages a research portfolio of over 40 clinical trials being conducted worldwide, primarily studying the effects of blood flow restriction rehabilitation in clinical populations. He serves as a medical consultant for teams in the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and various collegiate sports. He is involved in numerous clinical trials involving regenerative medicine, sports medicine, blood flow restriction, and high-NG trauma. Johnny has been published extensively in peer-reviewed literature, regularly speaks at the national and international level, and his work has been featured on 60 Minutes, Time Magazine, NPR, Discovery Channel, and ESPN. In this episode, me and Johnny talk about his pathway into physical therapy, his work at the Center for the Intrepid, where his interest in blood flow restriction came from, the common mistakes when utilizing BFR, and the correct protocols to maximize blood flow restriction training. Good afternoon, Johnny, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Good afternoon. Is it afternoon there? Uh, we are 7 p.m. here now, buddy. 7 p.m. All right, good. Almost the evening, basically, afternoon here. <laughs> it's all good, though, man. So, Johnny, thank you very much for jumping on, mate, and having a conversation with me, dude. Um, obviously, I've been following your work for quite some time now. Before you make an interesting guest to bring on, just regarding, you know, your experience uh, working within the, the military culture and just your, your work as a PT as well. So, for anyone who hasn't come across you, Johnny, could you just give us a little bit of a background of, you know, where your career started out and where you're currently at? Yeah, so I'm over here in the states, um, in in the best state there is in, in the United States, Texas. Um, so I'm a physical therapist. I graduated in 1998, so um, kind of an old timer now in, in physical therapy. Um, I, I left PT school and went into private practice, uh, primarily working in, in the sports medicine space. Um, also worked with some institutions, um, healthcare systems, uh, primarily sports med. Uh, 2004, I left that civilian sector and came on to the Department of Defense down here in San Antonio. We have the largest uh, military medical treatment facility in the world, um, the only level one trauma center. And we're called Military City USA down here in San Antonio. And, and okay. a real big portion of that is medical. And so I came on primarily as the sports med guy there um, and the wars were just starting, but in, in all aspects, everyone expected the wars to be over fairly quickly. Um, we put a paper out several years ago called what we learned from from 14 years of war um, so it, it went way longer than we thought so I transitioned from primarily taking care of things like ACLs and cartilage procedures to um, combat casualty care um, which really became kind of a passion of mine and uh, yeah so that's kind of where I evolved and left the center for the intrepid um, which was our kind of our main rehab hub down here at our base um, in 2015 and started my own company called Owen Recovery Science. Nice. That's awesome to hear, dude. Um, obviously, what was it, you know, that got you into the, the field of physical therapy? You know, was it always something you wanted to do as you were growing up or is it something like you came to later on? 
I'm a weird Texan because uh, I, I love soccer. I, my dad was very disappointed that I, I didn't like take up football more. And so, um, you know, I, I was better at soccer. And so I, my goal was to go play in the Premier League um, in, in soccer, but I, I was not even close to being that good. But anyways, I, I blew my ACL out in high school and then blew it out again playing in college. Um, and then I had a, a bike wreck. I got hit by a car. So I went through three different knee surgeries um, and lots of rehab. And I was thinking about being an orthopedic surgeon and that path just seemed too laborious for me um, and, and didn't feel like I had the smarts for that. But the rehab piece really interested me, always being an athlete. Um, this is kind of your typical PT school. You know, why'd you want to get into PT school? It's like, well, I got injured and I did rehab. So I, I've got that same kind of dull story. So, so that was it. I was kind of floundering away in college at the University of Texas and decided that I wanted to become a physical therapist. And then once I got decided, you know, really went down that road, I, I was able to focus a lot more. Obviously, yeah, uh, soccer is very, very different to be into down there in Texas, dude. But then again, <laughs> MLS has taken off quite heavily in Austin, hasn't it now? With regards yeah. to the teams there. Yeah, it's cool. I, you're starting to see it. You know, this, they're actually getting their own stadiums now. They're either borrowing stadiums or playing at high school stadiums. So, yeah, we're seeing it. It's starting to happen. So it's cool. Nice, dude. Nice, man. Now, obviously, you're saying, you know, you came out of PT school, you're working in private practice and that. What made you want to make that transition out of the private practice into, you know, being a contractor within the, the military structure there? Insurance. Okay. insurance drove me nuts, you know, so I'd get it like a young ACL and, you know, to get like six visits and our insurance system's really weird over here. You know, it's privatized. Um, it has, has some positives, some negatives, but there's a lot of negatives, um, in, in the medical side when, when you're the clinician. And so I, I just was very frustrated and, you know, trying to get reimbursed for things and seeing reimbursements go down. Um, and, and so, one of my colleagues was the former chief of physical therapy at the base. Um, he'd retired as a colonel and he, you know, he told me, you, you might love working in the military sector because insurance doesn't exist. You, you, you know, you rob Peter to pay Paul. The, the government just pays for whatever. You can see a patient for as long as you want. And so he made some connections for me and, and I was able to get in and do some interviews. And yeah, and for me, it's the best decision ever. Um, kind of got into it was a terrible time, but a beautiful time for, for medicine. Um, wars really bring out a lot in the military medical space. Um, a lot of teamwork, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of advancements. So um, I actually feel really lucky I got in when I did and, and was able to, to stick with it until the wars ended and then left on a good note whenever I felt I was at a good place to leave. Sweet, dude. And I mean, obviously, you know, I was read up under bio, you're the chief there of uh, human uh, performance optimization. Did you walk straight into that role? Or was that something you developed up into? And what was the role, you know, what that role encompass as well? The military loves to give you cool titles. They don't give you good pay, but they, they're the, they give you great titles. So yeah, I, I, I didn't really have a, a true title. And then um, I, I started working with limb salvage patients. Um, so combined into our sports clinic, we started also bringing in these limb salvage patients. And that, that was really a, a strange transition. It was basically the trauma doc, the chief of trauma at our, at our base. He came and asked if I would start seeing his limb salvage um, war patients with, with our just kind of typical sports injuries. And I, and I told him, I have no idea how to, how to deal with that kind of trauma. You know, these guys were all in frames, um, just you know, mul you know, multitudes of injuries. 
Um, and, and basically it was just, they weren't getting a, a really accelerated, uh, aggressive kind of rehab like we see in the sports space. So we, so we started really bringing those folks in um, and, and, and started getting more and more into, into the trauma side there. And, and so as I got more into it, um, actually started you know, publishing a few papers and then started researching it. Um, and, and I became director of Limb Salvage. Um, and it was kind of a weird title, director of Limb Salvage and kind of pseudo also um, sports medicine director, which is probably a title you'll never hear together, Limb Salvage and sports medicine director. Um, then the Center for the Intrepid opened. It was primarily just for amputees. Um, and then a few, a year and a half or so later, we rolled all of the limb salvage people in. And, and then I became chief of human performance optimization at the Center for the Intrepid. And, and all it, I mean, it wasn't anything major, but it was basically, I had this kind of leeway to, to look for maybe missing pieces for problems that we were having. So we, we had just this brilliant group of, of, of smart folks at our base from the orthopedic surgeons. We have our Institute of Surgical Research is where the DOD scientists are. We have our animal labs there, just a wealth of resources, civilian sector resources at the universities. And so some of these problems we were having, it was we would meet and say, this is an issue. There's really nothing in the published literature. Is there something we should look at and go after? So it was, it was really fun just trying things. Um, as long as it was safe and it didn't hurt them. And you know, during the wars, we kind of had a blank check, which was nice, you know, so we're not, we're not really having to ask for money if they say it's going to help a, a warrior. Um, typically, we would get it. And so that's kind of what it was. And trying things, retro, we would define a problem. Lots of times write a paper, this is a problem. Put something towards it that we think might help, retrospectively analyze it. If it worked, we would publish that and say, look, we did this, it worked. And then we would try and get bigger money to do larger trials with it. So that we could say, okay, here's a problem. There was nothing there. We tried this. It worked. Now it looks like when we study it larger, it might really work. And then translate that to the civilian sector. That's interesting to hear, David. I mean, that initial process you're saying, like, you know, coming from more of a sports medicine background into that, what was that, that learning curve like when you got suddenly pulled in to do, you know, stuff with the limb salvage and amputee sort of work as well? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't like a terrible learning curve there, you know, but you typically don't have an ACL that you're working with that is like, hey, next week I'm going to cut my leg off because this isn't working. Um, so the stakes were much higher mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the burden on the service member was high. You know, I mean, at one point we tracked a year and look back, we almost had a 90 percent divorce rate. Um, so you had, you know, PTSD and family issues and addicted to drugs. We, several of, of, our, of our young men, unfortunately, killed themselves. So kind of much more in your face stuff that would keep you up at night. I'm not worried about someone with a cartilage procedure, you know, if they if they can't get back to their sport. But I'm worried that, you know, this guy's going south in his life or, yeah, he's going to have to cut his leg off. And is there something I'm missing that we could have done differently in this salvage that, you know, would keep them from being a delayed amputee. That's interesting, dude. And I mean, on that, as much as you can talk about, you know, what would you say example wise was probably your most challenging, you know, sort of case studies if you can chat about that and, you know, lessons learned and end outcomes if you can. Yeah. Well, most challenging, God, there's so many, um, you know, what, what was really interesting is, is we had the lowest fatalities of any modern day conflict in OEF, OIF. Mm -hmm. our, our 
our medics are badass. Our, our forward surgical teams are badass. The tourniquets were badass. You know, everything downrange just became elite to save, to save these service members, these men and women. But the problem was as the fatality rates you know, were really going down, the types of injury burden that we were seeing were getting worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, you would, you would see these, you know, so you see a high AK uh, above knee amputee. Lots of times they wouldn't have lived because they were an open pelvis where the blast, if, it's, if it blasts you that high, it, it takes your leg off that high. It's going to potentially open your, your pelvis and you're just going to bleed out. Your guts are on the battlefield type thing. You know, pelvic tourniquet was invented that stopped the bleed. It, it was invented actually at our base. Um, and took that that mortality rate. I, I'm not sure my numbers are 100% right, but down from like a 90% mortality to like a 50% mortality. But now you're getting these people that had injuries that might have killed them before that are severely disabled. Um, and so your goal at that point is to get them to as high of level as function as possible. Um, but there's there was a lot of missing pieces of, of what what can we do to get them to that point? You know, is it just, are they going to be stuck in a wheelchair and this is as much as they can do? Or do we need to look at other things, regenerative medicine techniques, which we're still trying to work on, better prosthetics, exoskeletons, and all those sort of things. So um, I think the complexity and, and just seeing the poor function um, was the biggest challenge. And I guess the biggest challenge for me, really, when I was focusing on limb salvage was a really high delayed amputation rate which means, you know, a salvage procedure, uh, limb salvage is a weird term. And, and basically it's the best term I heard was one of the orthopedic trauma guys at a conference said, it, it's anyone who had an injury so bad that if they said, I want to cut my leg off, you would completely understand just mangled limbs. And so mm -hmm. a lot of these mangled limbs, they would want to keep them, you know, and they, and it's typically a year to a three year process. So you work that hard and struggle. And lots of times during these, these X fixes, these frames, um, for 18 months. And, 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 and so work, 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 work. And you hope you get them to where they need to be. And, you know, their, their function was just terrible, can barely walk. And, and, and if they can walk, they just had severe pain, can't run at all. And, and a lot of these guys and girls, what they really wanted to do was be service members. They wanted to redeploy, get back in the fight. And, and, and really, they didn't have that option and then would come back and, you know, it was kind of a bad running joke. The guy walked into my clinic and said, cut my leg off in the civilian sector. You know, if you say, why do you want to cut my leg off? You say, well, I need to run. You would say, well, have you heard of a bike or swimming? There's other ways for exercise in, 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 in the military. That's kind of really who makes you who you are, unfortunately, is that function. And so it became accepted that they could cut their leg off. And, and so we get it when you're young, it, you know, that might seem like the best option, but when you go to the VA, um, and you see some of these amputees, there's a, there's a lot of downside to that. So um, that, that was the burden. And that's really where we started ramping up um, this just cheap human performance optimization and, and all the smarter people that I worked with than me of are there other solutions to this? That's interesting, dude. And I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's crazy to see like some of the, the stories of guys you see published who have lost, you know, lower limb, like, that, that above knee amputation sort of stuff and, and still return back to active duty in some cases. And it's just like, Jesus, you know, the, from everything from the treatments back to the prosthetics and stuff as well yeah. to, to that stage. You know, but it's very rare. And that was our, our battle that we fought against. You know, it's around 15% of amputees actually make it back to duty. Um, and, and, you know, these are older numbers, so it could change. 
And that was below knees typically. Mm -hmm. And then typically when you looked at it, it was more to get back to like a desk job, you know, so you might have a special forces guy who is a below knee who's retained on active duty, but you know, he's a trigger puller and that's what he does and wants to be out there in the field. And now, you know, they're stuck behind a desk. So um, part of it was also explaining just because you cut your leg off, you know, your chances of really getting back and, you know, fast roping out of a helicopter are very slim. Um, I only know a few of the guys that are were really able to pull that off. So it, it, it's a it's a big challenge and a big burden, that's for sure. Definitely, definitely, dude. That's it's crazy to hear because obviously you just see these these highlight stories. You're like, wow, that's that's incredible yeah. so to to see that and be like, right, okay, it's more of the exception than the rule. Yeah, with them within it. We're really good at highlighting the positive stories uh, <laughs> in the military. Yeah, there's there's a good uh, propaganda arm, I think, but it, but it's good. We need those. We need those good stories. Definitely, man. Definitely. And obviously you're saying, you know, at the time of like during warfare, you know, we start to see huge strides forward in like uh, performance medicine and physical therapy. So stuff with the techniques we're using, obviously one of the big things I wanted to reach out and chat to you about was the blood flow restriction training. Is that something mm -hmm. you were already using in your practice or is it something you just started to use more of when you started working within that military population? Yeah. I mean, I had no idea about any of this before in the military. I, I don't really think clinically, you can really say anyone really did, especially in the States. Um, and, and so we didn't have BFR. It's been around for quite some time. The oldest paper we found that used kind of a, a kind of a BFR type of program was in 1937 in JAMA. Um, so if anyone says I invented BFR, they're full of crap because they weren't, they're not alive anymore. Um, so what, what was going on is we developed this exoskeleton um, for limb salvage where basically instead of cutting your leg off with a prosthetic, um, this it was a carbon and Kevlar device we built around your lower leg and it acted like a prosthetic. And so it had these glass and, and carbon struts on the back. And if you hit the foot plate in this perfect kind of position, those would bend and it would give you calf power. And, and calf, the calf is like one of the most important muscles that we have in our body, especially for, for gait and especially, you know, when you're looking at things like running. Um, and so, we developed this thing, put tons of effort into it. It, it was a humongous success. Um, have had done multiple trials showing it's done everything from delayed amputations or, or, or stopped amputations um, to help people get back to redeployment. Um, the military patented that device. Um, now we're seeing, I just had a call this morning, we're trying to get a bigger rollout stateside at, at some of the big healthcare systems with it. And so it was a beautiful success. The problem was that if your thigh muscle wasn't really strong, that device would like own your knee. It would almost make your knee feel like it was going to hyperextend. So we made it part and parcel that if you're going to come and you're going to get this device, and we're going to put all this work into it, that we have to put you through the strength program, either with us or send you back to your strength coaches or wherever you're working with. Um, and, and lots of times, you know, two, three months later, they'd come back and they'd made minimal changes in strength or we would be working with them, made minimal changes in strength. You see that over and over again in rehab. You know, when you, when you get done with PT school, you're going to see this and bang your head against the wall lots of times of just like, I've tried every quad exercise with this person. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot of changes that happen to the muscle after injury. Um, even after ACL, we see the quad gets fibrotic and the muscle stem cell count goes down. Everything kind of changes. The higher the level of trauma, you know, the worse it is. So what we were looking at is, is there another way that we could work on getting primarily just quad strength in these individuals so that this damn device that we're going to put on them will work and they don't cut their leg off. Um, and so 
that's where we meet as our groups and start going through everything and talking with people. And we just started finding these papers on blood flow restriction that were done primarily in physiological labs and, and some, some work in Japan. Um, and then when we started calling some of these, these researchers that had done some of this early leg work. And it's nice, you know, when you call a, a researcher and you say, hey, this is John A. Owens from the Department of Defense, I need to talk to you. They typically will talk to you. Um, and so we just started asking them, are these results true? You know, this looks kind of too good to be true. A lot of these factors we were looking for, can you drive muscle protein synthesis? Can you do this with a low load? Um, it was exactly what we were looking for. So then we started vetting it um, from a safety profile because we have to make sure it's safe. And so we got our tourniquet experts who are luckily were at our base um, to, to start explaining how tourniquets work. And then once we felt safe with it, dabbling with it on ourselves um, over in the lab, then we, we chose a cohort of special forces, limb salvage guys, to, to try it on um, that same thing. We defined the problem, then we tried it on these guys. We went back and looked at the results and they were fantastic. So we published that paper in the Journal of Special Forces um, that if we put this tourniquet on, it seems to, to really restore strength in these in these really just terribly mangled limbs and then we we took that and started rolling into a full program at the center for the intrepid and then started to get dod grant funding and, and started studying it for the the limited stuff i've looked into you know blood flow restriction training is a really interesting uh, modality to use within regards to like sports medicine rehabilitation i was going to ask you just regarding that then because obviously with the tourniquet like for the the battlefield side of things we're trying to limit um well, limit uh, blood loss there as well by including the limb. How do you implement that then with the guys, you know, when they're back home stateside? And is there any issues with regards to like, you know, tissue damage further down the limb as well and that, that risk? Or is it further on down the rehab process when there's more tissue healing? I'm sorry to throw that in. Yeah, so tourniquets can cause damage, that's for mm -hmm. sure. And a battlefield tourniquet can surely cause damage. So, you know, you can kind of look at it this way. There's hundreds of thousands of hospital surgical tourniquet procedures done. Yeah. And those are done in a very safe way. The, the company we use, Delphi, um, they're our blood flow restriction device. If you ask me, it's the best one there is in the world. They basically brought the modern day tourniquet into the world. Um, tourniquets in the US used to be a class two FDA device, which is, a, which is a moderate risk classification. When Delphi brought this surgical tourniquet, they had a microprocessor, the cuff kind of monitors, um, the limb swelling, they have these cuffs that are tapered and, and fit the limb really, really perfectly. The FDA actually, because the injuries from the tourniquets went down so low, the FDA made that a class one device, which is the same classification as a toothbrush. Um, so those tourniquets are extremely safe. The problem with them is they're microprocessed, they're in a box, they're tethered. You can't be a battlefield medic and walk around with those. So in an austere environment like war, you use a combat tourniquet. A combat tourniquet is thin, you pump them up, um, but it the thinner the tourniquet, the more pressure you have to pump to be able to get the occlusion. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw in, in one of our scientists, the ISR just did a retrospective of the wars. Um, the biggest complication of battlefield tourniquets was nerve damage. Cause when you, when you occlude with those thinner ones, um, you're going to start to squeeze on the nerve and you can demyelinate nerves. And so that's, that's the, that's the chronic disability that you have from those type of tourniquets. Now those tourniquets, the same behind them is they're to save a life, not a limb. So who cares if I, if I gave you nerve damage on the battlefield, I saved your life. That being said, you know, yeah, these, these guys came back they probably had some nerve damage. 
you know, to be honest, they had so much other <laughs> damage that the damage from the tourniquet didn't matter. But by the time they got to us, we were using the same systems even better than you would be seeing in a surgical suites. So we felt very, very comfortable and, and we've really seen no problems with it when it's done properly. Cool. That's, that's really interesting to hear. And just something I wasn't aware of, like that full difference between battlefield tourniquet and the, the stuff you guys are using for the blood flow restriction side of things. Um, with regards to like blood flow restriction then, Johnny, just for the guys listening who may not be familiar with the, the concept of it and that, can you just give us a bit of an overview of what blood flow restriction is and how it's typically implemented? Yeah, um, basically the elevator pitch is it's the application of a tourniquet on the proximal thigh or the proximal arm and you pump it up enough to, to shut off arterial blood flow to a certain percentage. The systems we use, it actually will measure how much blood flow it's stopping and, and will give you the range that we think you should use it at. Um, so you open it up a little bit to allow just a little bit of arterial flow to go in. When you use those kind of pressures, you pretty much 100% block venous return. It doesn't take very much at all to block the veins because they're very pliable. Um, and then what it does is it allows you to exercise at a very low load, anywhere from no load up to about 30% of a 1RM and get similar gains in hypertrophy and strength as lifting heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, there's a bazillion things we can talk about of what the mechanisms are. I, we're getting closer, I think, to understand them, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of debate of what's the most powerful one. You know, the, the layman's kind of easy one is, well, without that much oxygen in your limb, when you're lifting a light weight, your body's forced to use fast twitch fibers um, because slow twitch fibers use oxygen. So that, that was always that. That's the most basic, easy explanation. Now we're understanding there's a whole lot probably more involved, even just hypoxia and what it does for gene expression that might be making some changes. Okay, that's interesting. So, so what are those, uh, those new findings then typically are coming through on that? Well, you know, the Nobel Prize in 2019 was given um, to, to three scientists, one from Harvard, one from Oxford, and one um, from, from Johns Hopkins, who had done decades of work showing that when you reduce oxygen levels around a cell, it, 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 it influences gene expression, and lots of times in a positive way. And so like one of the ones that the factors they looked at, it's called HIF1A, hypoxia-inducible factor 1A. And, it, it, and it's this, this protein that lives in the bone. When you reduce oxygen in that limb, that HIF1A is able to come out and basically be protected in that low oxygen state. And then there's a bazillion kind of downstream things that it regulates. But one of them is VEGF. And, and VEGF is right below. It comes out from HIF1A. And VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor. And so you can see that we can drive this capillarization um, just from this hypoxic state, it looks like. And so, you know, Chris Fry is one of a friend of mine, a colleague. Uh, he just put a paper out that, you know, if, if you take two groups of people, old people that have good capillary beds in their legs and old people that don't have good capillary beds in their legs and put them on a 12 week training regimen, the people with poor capillarization in their legs don't make changes, mm -hmm. right? And so in those cases, those people could maybe benefit from BFR in this angiogenic response. So we're, we're looking at this as we're driving capillarization to give them to this baseline level. So when they do do strength training, they can actually get benefits. Um, there's other things, you know, we've been looking at driving mesenchymal stem cells and muscle satellite cells through these hypoxic states. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think we're going to start seeing more and more and more of maybe the, what there is with gene expression with this and, and looking at the, what hypoxia does. That sounds awesome, dude. And I mean, just um, 
it's versatility, like you say, there across different population groups, like the elderly there as well with poor capillarization. You know, that sounds like really awesome stuff to start investigating as well. Um, for the guys out there, Len, so what, what sort of protocols do you typically follow? You mentioned about loads there up to anywhere between 20 to 30% of 1RM, you know, but what, what sort of rep range are we talking here? Are we pushing for failure or do you want a set number of reps for them? Yeah, we put out a position stand um, in Frontiers and Physiology last year, maybe 2019. It, it's, it's open access, so anyone can get it. Um, Stephen Patterson and Jamie Burr were the leaders, but it was a group of all of us that are really interested in BFR around the world who got together um, and, and you know, basically said, this is what we think is best practice for this right now, either from a research perspective or from a clinical perspective. The most published set and rep scheme and, and rest period scheme right now is a, a set of 30 with a 30 second rest followed by three sets of 15 with a 30 second rest. If you're in that 20 to 30% of a one rep max, and if you're getting some good occlusion, and, and I really feel like you need to be between at least 60 to 80% of arterial occlusion, most people are gonna hit failure um, or, or get to fatigue in, in that window. That's the most published set rep and rest scheme there is. And it seems to work, um, but there are other ways to skin the cat. You know, one of our, our colleagues that does some research with us, um, Houston Methodist, he just finished an ACL trial that was very promising um, in its results and as well as a rotator cuff trial. Um, and, and what he used for those is 30, 15, 15 failure. So that, that four set go to failure. But typically what you see is when you tell them in that four set to go to failure, and what I've seen with that, they're still within that kind of 12 to 20 reps for that four set. So they kind of land close to that 15. I've seen a lot with regards to like this whole lockdown process throughout the, the world, you know, people trying to get fancy if they're training in some regards and some of the stuff that some people have been using is uh, blood flow restriction. However, you know, I've seen them with, instead of like an actual cuff, there being something like a, a powerlifting knee wrap or something like that tied around and including off. You just talk to us a little bit around, you know, what some of the um, some of the common faults you typically see with guys trying to implement blood flow restriction, and what some of the contraindications would be as well. One of the probably most common faults I've seen when I'm at the gym is some knucklehead doing heavy lifting and wrapping and doing a pseudo kind of BFR with it. If you can lift heavy, just lift heavy. You don't need to add any extra tourniquet or anything else to it. Um, when you lift heavy during the contractions, you are the contractions and on the muscle puts on the vasculature is so strong. It actually includes blood flow. So you're already getting into this hypoxic state during that and just throwing a cuff on adds just nothing else to it. So if you're gonna lift heavy, just lift heavy. Most humans, if, if they are able to lift heavy, I think that's the best way to go. So people are like, do you do BFR? And I always say, hell no, unless I'm just forced to, because it's hard, it sucks. Um, so I would, I, I actually just prefer lifting heavy. If you can't lift heavy because you're injured surgery or maybe lockdown, you just can't get the weights, then yeah, BFR is perfect. If all you have is a low load. The other thing then I, you would want to watch for is, you know, don't hurt yourself. So people can do whatever they want to themselves. I, you know, if you want to put a tourniquet around your neck, go for it. Um, I don't really care, you know, but as a clinician, the world changes because you're doing something to someone else. So you got to be very, when I, when, he, when I get asked this question, it's, you know, I, I don't want ever want to say clinicians can kind of go down this road. Clinicians have to follow safety first, efficacy, and, and, and you're doing it to someone else. If you're in the gym, 
part of the problem with a lot of these things you see people use is they're probably getting minimal occlusion. Um, you know, it's hard to, to really get good occlusion if you're using these little pump up things. They, they just drift back down. Um, the wraps, sometimes, you know, it, you have to really, really wrap it tight to get down there. So yeah, it, less is probably more, and that's probably the safest way. Be careful with narrow things, you know, just like the battlefield tourniquet, the more narrow, the more pressure gradient you get. Um, and that's where people do something. I'll come back and say, I don't feel my fourth and fifth digit anymore. Um, that you cause some nerve damage. So mm -hmm. a little bit wider, um, you know, be careful with it. You know, one of the easiest things, maybe if you want to use and just dabble is just get a blood pressure cuff, pump it up. It's going to drift down, um, but you can kind of keep trying to pump it up to keep it there and, and just kind of see there's even blood pressure cuffs for the thigh that, that people could try and use. Okay. That's interesting, dude. Obviously, you've mentioned a little bit throughout this chat, dude, about some of the research that's going on into BFR. Where, where do you see the research going next with regards to this? Yeah, so we have a ton of trials worldwide. Um, either we're helping with, tracking, et cetera, supporting. Um, the majority of them are orthopedic trials. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of them are ACLs. Uh, we have more ACL trials than you can shake a stick at. Um, we have we have DOD. We just got 1.4 million this year for a new ACL trial in the DOD. We have a femur fracture trial in the DOD, stress fracture trial in the DOD. So we're also looking at bone healing, um, labral trials. But now we're, we're the needle is moving more into who I think are going to maybe have the biggest bang for their buck, um, and that is these comorbidity states from um, you know from oxidative stress. So we, there's a diabetes trial that. It's going on right now that we're supporting in Germany um, to see not is BFR making diabetics stronger and bigger musculature, is it helping control their glucose levels? Um, and so, you know, that moves it into a whole different space. Now it's like, okay, this is something that is kind of helping, you know, in this medical aspect, it's a little bit out of our rehab world, but, but very, very fascinating. Um, we had a Parkinson's trial, it's not published yet, but it was done at Baylor down here in Texas um, that, that found Parkinson's patients not only got stronger um, and functionally better when they did BFR versus lifting heavy, but it improved their vascular system. So they had this angiogenic response and their endothelium um, was actually improved in the BFR group just from doing it for a month. So it could even be, you know, people with these vascular issues or, or conditions like Parkinson's that have a lot of oxidative stress. BFR could be like a thing you come in once a month for a year in a year to kind of get a vascular checkup um, and, and improve your endothelium and angiogenic response. So I, I'm excited really about those um, and seeing that maybe we can start to get into cancer um, and, and some of these other ones. We have an MS trial that's going on at University of Colorado now. So I'm really excited to see it not just be stuck in orthopedics. That's awesome, dude. And just to hear it just how it's expanding out across the medical realm there as well and across multiple different conditions and stuff. That's going to be really interesting to see. Do you think they're yeah. going to be, what, some point in the next year, potentially some of those will be published? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We, we just, we got this Parkinson's done. I, I need to hound the, the, <laughs> the researcher that did it and, and have her finish it up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, well, you know, there was a pause. The, the German trial, I think, just started back up. But yeah, we're going to start seeing more and more of these for sure. That's cool. That's really cool. Definitely something to look out for, dude. Um, obviously, Johnny, um, everyone I get on the show, I'm always keen to know what they're doing for their own development. So on that, could I just ask, could you give us a book, 
an app or website you know you've personally found useful in your own education or your own development yeah, I saw that question you sent to me. I'm I'm the worst. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but I, I really try to think about it. Um, because I'm not really an app guy. I think apps actually wipe me out more than than they help me. Um, although I use this one called Evernote, um, which is like my my left brain. I just keep everything in there and I've I've had it for years. And so it's it's just been this beautiful kind of tracking system for me. Um, you know. I, I do enjoy books, um, more of a kind of a history buff guy, but, you know, something that I started reading because one of the officers um, that came through the Center for the Intrepid just told me the story about it is a lot of the stoic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think stoicism is pretty cool. Um, and especially, you know, coming at it from during the wars, uh, you know, with, you know, you kind of take what, what, what you were given and, 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 and make the best of it. Um, and, and that's probably the worst definition of what stoicism is. But, you know, I just finished a, one, you know, not too long ago, a, a new one called the Stoic Challenge, which I thought it's really timely coming through COVID of, you know, some some ways that people can kind of take everything that's thrown at them right now and and see how to make it something that, that is actually not so bad. Definitely, definitely not. And bourbon, yeah. lots of bourbon. That's that's my that's my app. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, dude. I'll make sure I'll pop them in our show notes, Johnny. Thanks a lot, buddy. Um, obviously, it's been awesome getting to chat to you, Johnny. For anyone who's listening to this and either wants to find out a bit more about BFR, chat to you about, or just even because you obviously you've got the Owens Recovery Science courses on BFR as well, like how can guys get in touch with you and get enrolled in these things? Yeah, so owensrecoveryscience.com. We have a podcast. Uh, we have blogs on there. Um, we have we have courses if you're a clinician and you're interested in doing this. Um, we have courses in, in Europe, um, lots of you know, really great, smart, smarter than me folks that are teaching it over there, um, Australia. So we're all over the place. So if you, if you want to do this, um, that's the way you can learn more as a clinician. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Johnny Owen CFI. Um, but I, I will warn you, I'm probably the worst social media follower there is there's not a lot of action coming from me and if it is it's probably inappropriate no we appreciate that man that's all good no that's yeah. awesome Joey. thanks Amy. i'll pop them in our show notes as well so if anyone wants to reach out they can do that as well mate uh once again mate thank you so much johnny it's been great getting to chat to you finally and just a topic i'm very interested in as well so thank you very much for your time bud cool john thanks for having me on brother appreciate it dude. take care Hi guys, really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support in us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.